This time, we're taking a look at the pubescent wish fulfillment film, Weird Science. And along the way, we ask, is Lisa just a witch? Did John Hughes actually know how to write women? And is this problematic or just a product of his time? So, what would you little podcasts like to do first? This is Force Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast, where we are in 80s schlocky sci-fi month. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, uh, Sean Culp. <laughs> yes, welcome back. And we are talking, once again, we are talking about the John Hughes written and directed film from 1985, Weird Science. And, like, I, I gotta say, like, I had not seen this movie like i've seen snippets of it here and there i'm more a fan of the the title song than of the movie but like man this movie has not aged well (laughs) yeah my absolutely absolutely i've heard the song as well the weird science and i was like oh that's where this is from but you're you're i will totally back you on that my first thoughts immediately was like this film is totally a product of the 80s, schlocky 80s, and it does not <laughs> translate to modern times in the plot, themes, or any of it. No, and and we'll certainly get into this later, but this is definitely a movie that you could not make today. Like, you could only make this in the mid-80s, and the only way it could be made was if John Hughes had made it. And for those unfamiliar with the plot of Weird Science, it's about these two awkward little teenage nerds uh, Gary and Wyatt who I mean they're they're outcasts they're losers they can't they're they're they, all they do is daydream about getting with hot babes and chasing babes so what do they decide to do they decide to create their ultimate fantasy woman and in doing so there's all sorts of misadventures that ensue but in the end that they learn there's more to life than just chasing babes they learn how to be in meaningful relationships and learn how to respect women but there's a long problematic way you know to go through first before they realize that for sure i like though that you said uh it's john hughes and um john hughes though he it's crazy because he's he's very well known for the 80s guy i think i've seen uh pretty in pink by him and uh i think did he do uh ferris bueller's day off yeah so at this point like John Hughes is already the king of 1980s, like teenage, uh, teenage films. Like he did 16 Candles the year before. In the same year, he's already done The Breakfast Club, which is still considered like the seminal 80s film. Like if you were going to do route, uh, Mount Rushmore of films from the 80s, The Breakfast Club for sure would be on there. But he does Ferris uh, Bueller's Day Off in 1986, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Uncle Buck. Um, and then those are just movies that he's also directed he has a long list of other movies that he's written as well um the great outdoors um the national lampoons movies um christmas vacation the first vacation he actually wrote um the original story that the movie is based off for the national lampoon magazine so john hughes like king of comedy at this point nobody can deny that yeah he was the literal man he was the guy that you went to if you wanted uh, to direct an 80s comedy 
teen, really comedy, because I know, like you said, trains, planes, and automobiles, and I grew up on that stuff with John Candy. He was always one of my favorite actors, uh, you know, from back in the day. A lot of talent, a lot of talent there. A lot of talent, and I don't think anybody could write an insult better than John Hughes because I, I for a long time I had been anti plane trains and automobiles because I think I thought there was realistically no way somebody like Steve Martin would have put up with John Candy's antics for you know three days or however without killing him and leaving him on the side of the road. But after watching it last year, I really came around to it, and oh man, like. I wish I could come up with insults as good as John Hughes was able to. Yeah, that film, man, if you just, you know, do a little veer off for a second, it really shows, like, how resentments start and build and become overwhelming until you just pop on people. Like, for someone that is very passive and not, like, assertive or aggressive, and I sometimes fall into that category as one of my character defects is passivity. It's real. Like you could just, like the crap that you could put up with that someone puts up with. Yeah, I think it's very possible. Uh, still, my favorite line from that movie is, "If I wanted a joke, I'd follow you into the john and watch you take a leak." <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, good freaking movie, man! So many good times and quotes. For my childhood, but this film is not one of those films. Uh, I don't. What uh, did you see this before? Like when you were growing up? Like what led you to Weird Science? You know, um, you know, we were talking about eighties schlocky sci-fi, and for me, nineteen the nineteen eighties is for me when I think of movies, I think of John Hughes. He basically created the 1980s as a film genre. It's a reason why we see shows now that are set in the 1980s, shows like The Goldbergs or Stranger Things. He created an entire aesthetic that's firmly set in the 1980s. And just the first two movies we mentioned he um, directed during this decade, 16 Candles and The Breakfast Club, People, there are so many people who refer to those two movies as either their favorite or one of their favorites. And... Like I, I think I probably watched the first ten minutes of this when I was a lot younger, but don't remember watching anything else. I think I, I think I was more familiar with the song than I was um, with the uh, with the movie itself. And then there was also like this weird time where there was a television show based off of the movie in the that only ran during the mid nineties. But then again, I was probably too busy like watching Doug or something else on Nickelodeon and just wasn't aware of the show. Maybe just heard it in passing with the song, but but we were like, we're talking 80 schlocky sci-fi. John Hughes does one sci-fi movie. So I figured, Hey, let's do it during 80 schlock sci-fi month. <laughs> Absolutely. And what a great way to get him in and shout outs to Doug too. I totally forgot about that. Uh, Cartoon, you're probably you're probably right. That's probably where I've heard this song too from back in those times. Uh, this film, though, it is '80s cast. It has uh, Michael Anthony Hall as our one of our leads as Gary Wallace. Just kind of uh, yeah, you get to see him. He's had a pretty decent career from what I've seen. Um, we also have old oh man Ian Mitchell Smith as Wyatt Donnelly. And I think the big one uh, at the time, and so with this guy, Ian, uh, so 
He's kind of interesting. I did a little research on him. He only acted uh, for like a couple years, and then in '91 he retired. And then, like, he's, I believe, a PhD. He got, like, his master's and then a PhD in Texas A&M. And he's, like, an actual, like, academic professor. So it's just, like, kind of one of those another times where, um, you know, an actor, like a child actor, it's one of those instances where a child actor doesn't go off the road and just completely lose their life to drugs and alcohol or whatever. But this guy, actually, he freaking went to academia. And, um... Which is pretty, really, really neat. The big draw, though, for this movie is uh, Kelly LeBrock as Lisa. She is the computer-generated image model that they resurrect L. Frankenstein style. And, God, she was a beautiful woman back in that time. Yeah, she began her modeling career when she was 16 years old. And she was in her mid-20s when she did this movie. Um, the year before, in 1984, she starred alongside Gene Wilder in a movie called The Woman in Red. And from there, like her career just taken off. She did take a little break from acting after Weird Science came out, but she was probably in this weird... She probably was just tired of being objectified because she was modeling for so long and her her big job in Weird Science was to just look hot. Um, she, like... Like before Weird Science came out, like she starred in a shampoo commercial, like the reason why we I mean, have you ever heard the phrase don't hate me because I'm beautiful? Mm hmm. Yeah. She came up with that from a shampoo commercial. Oh, my God. OK, so that that all started back. Yeah. Like 80s culture where we're kind of obsessing about it turns from the 70s to the 80s where we start seeing like the obsession of bodies like Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger. There's like this obsession with like males having these jack figures and then women uh, models becoming these like sex icons. Yeah, I mean, we're still a bit far away from the era of uh, heroin chic for models that you know look super thin, um, bushy eyebrows or things like that. So we're still a bit away from that, but it, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting to the trace, the evolution over uh, with beauty standards for both men and women. I mean, obviously, I mean, in the fifties and sixties, women were a bit fuller, you know, seventies and eighties, they start shrinking down. And now, I mean, beauty standards are constantly evolving, but I think, you know, like, you know, if we look at characters like Gary and Wyatt, like I think every Every you know guy who watches this movie can identify with it. It's like, hey, I was an awkward teenager at one time, or at least most most can. I mean, I certainly identify with Gary and Wyatt in some aspects. Oh yeah, I I definitely identify with them. I was one of the nerdy, dorky kids in my teens. <laughs> Still am, and uh, so that like if I watched this movie when I was their age, uh, absolutely when I was a kid, because yeah. It, this this speaks to those nerds, our dorky kids that always wanted to be the man but never could. No, they and and them and their fifteen year old brains think like like well how can I be popular? How can people notice me? Like well I can create a incredibly beautiful woman that basically can conjure clothing and cars out of thin air. All of your dreams literally change your age. To passing at a bar which i wanted to say was like that's kind of nuts like did they appear as like 21 year olds because i when they got into the bar and they're 
15 and then Kelly or I guess Lisa, she gives them the IDs. Those IDs were so silly. They just like slapped a mustache on them. I was laughing. Like there's no way that that would have passed. Like it, it looks like something that you made at home. It's like, yeah, I'm a, I'm 21 for sure. Now let me in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm one of those guys. Like, I know there's some people out there that are like, oh, kids today look so old. And I'm like, bro, no, they still look like children. <laughs> when you're 16, you look 16. Like nobody like there's some maybe that grow facial hair that look older, like a lot of guys. But no, these are children. They look like children. I would have booted their butts out if I was working at that restaurant. <laughs> No, definitely some uh some failings there upon letting minors in and then letting them get totally trashed and uh, diving into <laughs> racist caricatures in front of the bar patrons. Yes, and uh, we can talk a little bit about that too. I know a little bit like this film with like it has just instances of, I guess at the time what was acceptable behavior, like you said, the bar they kind of turned somewhat racist. Uh, caricatures of like the people, the tenants in there, what the kids were saying, the objectification of Kelly LeBrock, but also like uh, the abuse from uh, Wyatt's older brother, Chet Donnelly, which is uh, Bill Paxson in this film. We get a young Bill Paxson. And then I think there's also abuse, like the classroom bullies. There's like Robert Downey Jr. appears in this as Ian. And then I think it's Robert Rustler is the other guy like the you know the class studs the 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 not the jocks but the preps that like everyone worships as like oh you're beautiful as max and you just like see like all the different tropes of back in the day come in yeah i think there's no good male characters in this movie i think everybody this movie has this these little weird traits of what we now know to be like toxic masculinity i mean obviously with RDJ and uh, Robert Russler, you know, they're like the the hyper preppy bullies where no, you know, they just bounce from one woman to the next. Chet is this ultra uh, masculine. I'm going to get my way. I shoot things because that makes me, you know, feel like a man even more. And you have Gary and Wyatt who just objectify women so much that no woman like could possibly measure up to their standards until it becomes too much for them to handle. And then they realize, Oh wait, I want a real girl that actually gets me. Yeah. Finally, <laughs> finally at the end, they, they realize, Oh, I gotta, I, I have everything that I ever wanted, but I'm still so alone. <laughs> and kudos to those kids though, for getting that. And, uh, you know, in the movie sense, to be 15 and be like, I just want to be loved and understood. Because I know that took me so long in like life and relationships to like break through that and be like, oh, I, I want love. I want to be get like all that. So I really, uh, I enjoy That's like the, I guess the positive note of this movie is that it does like in some way teach or establish like, hey, you should probably go after people that are your age and, you know, that you have that things in common and really enjoy you for who you are rather than just a sex object. Yeah, and I like how Lisa reminds them throughout the movie, I mean, you created me. I'm here for what you want to do. And then they don't know what to do with her. You know, she shows up. She magically shows up in, was it, Wyatt's bedroom and 
Like they don't know what to do with her. They, they they take a shower with her, but they're fully clothed and just looking at her. <laughs> they don't know what to do. Yep, yep. That's well. Yeah, that's I. I did, that was so funny when they got in the shower because, I mean, that is creepy though. Like these kids, they're. I mean, because this movie starts with them like eyeing up these women in this gym class, like the full gymnasium and these girls like exercising and these boys are just staring with their like mouths hanging out like, wow, saying a lot of, I guess, misogynist or like somewhat creepy things about these women and wanting to take showers with them, which is, or watch them take showers, which is really, I don't know, inappropriate Um, or stuff that you shouldn't say out loud. (laughs) <laughs> but they end up getting what they want with her and they don't know what to do. And that speaks to like, I guess maybe their naivety as kids, like, or sometimes you think what you want, but you don't know what to do when you have it or whatever. So that was kind of, it was silly, but also at the same time, I'm like, ah, I get that. I've been there. Well, this is also the concept of the dream woman. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm pretty like back in the fifties and sixties, like there were probably only five or six you know, women that everybody lusted after, but now in the eighties, there's more, there's more uh, beautiful women on television, more beautiful women across all spectrums of entertainment that now we get into the concept of the dream woman or dream women. And, you know, as little boys, because that's what they are. That's what Gary and Wyatt are in this movie. They're little boys. And for them to just say like, Oh, like, Oh, I love her. I love her. I love this part of her. (laughs) Like they don't know. And then it finally shows up. The most beautiful woman either of them could have dreamt up in their wildest dreams show up. And there's like, uh, 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 like they go in the vapor lock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They don't know what to do because they, they didn't think it would ever happen. And then they ended up having uh, two women that were interested in them. Um, you know, because and I like that they threw that in because it just, you know, I don't know if you ever had those experiences when you were younger where you're like, oh, I just have so much to say to these because I was a shy guy growing up where I, I could not talk to women. I was so terrified. And then finally, once I got the courage to muster up, you know, you talk to the females, they'd be like, oh, they'd be like, oh, you're not as a dork or a loser as you thought. You're kind of cute. And you're like, ah, look at that. I actually have a shot. And so they had that with this movie with the uh, two girls. And then you just had that realization in your head. It's like, you mean all I had to do was open my mouth sooner and you would have told me I was cute? (laughs) Right? All the things that my parents and parents tell their kids, just be yourself. What? (laughs) I mean, who would have thought that being yourself actually works? (laughs) Right? no 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 live a double life see how that works <laughs> just just lie all the time no right this is force fed sci-fi saying just be yourself well and even in that scenario where lisa kind of forces gary and wyatt to stand up to the mutant bikers and save uh what are the names deb and hilly like that's that's that scenario is manufactured by lisa so it's I don't know if it's actual bravado from Gary and Wyatt or if it's just more prodding by Lisa, but I don't know, like that that payoff or that sudden that hero moment for both of them, like I don't know, does that feel like actually earned or is it just more forced given the scenario? To me, that was weird. That was like so forced and 
<laughs> I honestly, I didn't know where the movie was going to go. And so that just made me laugh because it was like, it just reminded me of like a typical schlocky sci like 80s weird movie, sometimes sci-fi, where they're like, we have no idea what to do. Let's throw these crazy bikers, come crash the party, and give these kids a gun. <laughs> and it's like, I didn't know what they were going to do. And then the kids just end up, uh, back, the bikers just end up backing off, right? Yeah, like they have this weird, like, oh, don't tell anyone I could lose my teaching job or <laughs> like, like, we'll leave. We're sorry. Great party, by the way. And it's, it's just this weird turnaround. Like, I don't like I don't know if Lisa's just that powerful or if she was really trying to get the boys to come out of their shell. I I don't I did not understand that that sequence of events. I think she was trying to get them to come out of their shell and like defend you know get their get their moment in the sun in the glory to impress the women but at the same time then it's like well those girls they liked the boys for who they were they didn't need um that scene or maybe they did or like does that add then a layer of like more lies <laughs> because then you know or maybe that will give the uh the boys confidence to stand up to the bullies next time it, it's a weird turn of events because how do you explain to a young woman that like oh i love you but i also created this woman because i wanted to have sex with her but i love you <laughs> i mean it's a hard sell it's a very hard sell and i don't know too many women who would be willing to understand that no not at 16 no, I don't think at any age people would understand that. They'd be like, uh, okay, bye. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and while we were watching this movie, you had texted me at one point that this was actually pretty triggering for you. So I'm wondering if you're willing to kind of share your thoughts on that a little bit and kind of shed some light on some of the more triggering aspects for you. Sure, like... As, I don't know, now we're in like 2022 and I'm getting my degree in social work and becoming more in tune with like the needs and how representation is important in film. It was like seeing the like bar scenes um, where these kids are like, they want to go to like a seedy bar, I think was on their list that they named. So they take them to this bar and they like fill it in the bar it's like a seedy place, but all the like, quote unquote, bad people are like black people, Mexicans, like it's all these like minorities and also a white woman wearing a really like dress that's from like the 1920s or like from farm. It was like so weird. And then they like were, I think as the kids got drunk, as we alluded before, they started like saying kind of racist stuff. That was triggering in a way because it's like, wow, I wasn't expecting, you know, kids to be thrown around the Enwas like that. Um, but the big thing for me was like just, I guess, that like kind of put me off like, oh, my God, was the fact that it was like this 25-year-old woman like having to like kiss and I don't know, as like an actress, Kelly LeBrock having to like be a sex object for these kids and like try to... I guess act as if she wants to like bang them. And that was like really triggering because like seeing like how the kids act and at least in my life or where I'm going, like seeing how they treat her, 
um, was just like, ooh, it was just like a real big turnoff and like, oh my God, no, these men, no, you shouldn't be treating women like that. You Women are much more than just these sex objects. And so that stuff was like kind of triggering in a way where it was just like um, off-putting and um, definitely raised my defenses to like, oh my God, no, these are like all the bad things that men should not be doing or that movie should be displaying about minorities. Yeah, I I definitely had some pretty strong feelings about uh Gary um in the bar when he's drunk and basically putting on that I mean, I don't even know what to call that voice that he's employing. It's like a it's it's a he's almost like trying to do like a, a mammy type of voice where you know, he's telling this story about a woman who we presume is another lie that he was with. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, if he was actually doing this in a bar full of black people talking this way, they'd beat him up. Like they'd throw him out of the bar or, you know, they'd toss him down a flight of stairs or something, but there is no way in hell he would be able to get away with what he's doing. No, (laughs) that man would be dead. (laughs) That kid, he would be dead. (laughs) You can't disrespect people like that. No, I'm just reminded of so many moments in the the animated show F is for Family where there is a black bar on the other side of town. At any time a white person walks into it, like you hear the record needles scratch and (laughs) them just looking at the white person like, what are you doing in here? (laughs) Like the old cowboy movies at the saloon. Yeah, yeah, that's how I felt about this. But that like the fact that like the bar, like obscene bar is like, only where black people go. I was like, come on, really? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I grew up in Yorkville, which is past Aurora, where it's all white people. And there's a lot of seedy bars. And uh, it's all whites in there. So <laughs> it doesn't have to just be minorities. No, I, uh, white people go to seedy bars, too. I've, I've been to enough of them to know that all walks of life go to seedy bars. <laughs> yes. Yes, there is no skin or race that dictates whether or not you're a CD bar person or certain individuals go there. So that was kind of a, I don't know, it's just kind of a weird, um, but I guess product of its time, right? Well, yeah, and very much so. Um, I, I still don't think that kind of excuses, you know, the attitudes it has, you know, in when it comes to objectifying women or how it treats minorities. Uh, and it's still like there's this there was this weird time with teenage comedies where they were told almost exclusively from the point of view of the men. Like you couldn't tell it. You couldn't do this movie in the mid 80s with women as the main characters because then they just be viewed as sluts. But if you do it with two crazy pubescent boys, it's somehow charming and adorable and not at all problematic. It's this it's it's an odd attitude to take and it's something that is you know we as a culture haven't really still haven't really moved on from i guess i mean i would still like to see more movies that are told or at least movies in this genre that are told from you know both ends of the of the gender spectrum i mean you could even throw in different genders because gender is ultimately a construct so it's just it's I want to write off this movie as being like a product of its time. There are still some enjoyable moments, but like it's hard for me to move past just how it treats women and how it treats minorities. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm 
I'm right there with you because it's it's it just like reinforces the stereotypes and I've seen it in a lot of cultures where it's like the men can do anything like boys like growing up um guys like if you have a son you just let him roam do whatever no rules whatever just don't get anyone pregnant but then for the females it's like oh well, you got to be home by 5 like you can't go out and rough around at all like you got to keep yourself like preserved and be like this woman of, you know, stature. You can't sleep around. And it's just like, I don't like that uh, propagation of that stuff because that like takes the onus of responsibility of being a decent human being off of men and putting it solely on women. And uh, just kind of reinforces, you know, the crap that like guys can do anything and not be held responsible, <laughs> you know? It's definitely a dangerous attitude to take and even in this movie where gary and wyatt proceed to destroy wyatt's house over the course of that party i mean there's a a pershing missile that comes up through the floor there's you know uh furniture that's sucked up through chimneys books flying off of shelves tables being broken and yet lisa thanks to the intervention of a woman she snaps her fingers and everything gets fixed everything is all okay because a woman fixed it Right. Women always have to clean up the messes that men make. We can never be responsible enough to take care of our own stuff. Uh, it's crazy to me. It's like in like given how how much this movie does objectify women, it's baffling for me considering, you know, the the female characters that John Hughes has written for. I mean, the uh, Ali Sheedy and Molly Ringwald's character in uh, The Breakfast Club, those are two strong complex uh, emotional women who are great to watch on screen and then we get something like this where lisa and deb and hilly are really just like objects for the men's desire and even deb and hilly i felt so bad for those two girls because their boyfriends like are ultimately conspire to leave them just so they can get gary and wyatt to make them a woman of their own presumably to you know rape and do whatever weird things they want to do to them it's just it's so it's maddening yeah yeah and speaking of that like with lisa's character and like making these characters i mean that's crazy that you got to think about like from her perspective she's like bound to whatever they say so like she doesn't even have like her own choice in the matter like she has to have sex with these kids which is really like that's speaking about like the powerlessness that she ultimately uh I feels and identifies with, you know, as she alludes to it before. And that's kind of crazy for like um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character and the other guy, you know, that they're willing to just like leave actual like their own girlfriends to like have their own like manufactured one because they they they're just chasing after like something that looks like Kelly LeBrock over like they're putting the precedence of uh, uh, physical features over like the heart. And that's just, like, really sad. But also, like, they get their comeuppets, so it ends up working out for me. <laughs> I mean, they do. They certainly get their comeuppance. And then e there's that, that weird moment at the mall where they pour their slushy 
on Gary and Wyatt and Deb and Hilly see this and they're both disgusted by the both of them. And then they just turn on the charm and just go, we're sorry. And then they take him back, even though they just had a pretty rigorous debate between the two of them. It's like, they're both jerks. Why are we still with them? So we even have women that are just like, oh, they have cute smiles. Let's go back to them. Right. It's just like telling dudes that all you have to do is just say sorry and smile and then they'll clean up your mess for you. It's just it's propagating all the stereotypes that uh, are no bueno. So so this movie is getting an F for me from that. Uh, It's just. And also, I wanted to say uh, the brother like Bill Paxson, his character, uh, he gets like an F for being a douchebag brother. Like, he just, like, hates, like, him, uh, like, Ian's character so much. Like, why? <laughs> what did he do so bad? Like, I took it as an inferiority complex. Yeah, I mean, yeah, by all accounts, Wyatt is seemingly smarter than Chet and and is probably jealous of that. He wants to feel more like a man by, you know, grabbing his shotgun out on weekends and shooting, you know, whatever defenseless animal he can get his hands on. But it was surprising to me that Wyatt's parents are totally oblivious to the fact that their oldest son is bullying their youngest son. They have no idea. They just seem like absent parents. I mean, like, if you, I mean, you have brothers. Like, what would your parents have done if they found out, like, you were bullying your brothers or the other way around? Like, what would have happened in your house? Oh, we would have been punished. Well, I don't know. I, I was punished many times for for being a jerk to my younger brother. It was like I was I was trying to make him tough, but then uh, at the end, um, you know, in doing so, I after thinking about it, I was like, all right, I'm just being an, a jerk to this kid. Like I should be like defending him and supporting him. So it it was like at first, um, our parents like. They would like ground us or something, but they didn't. Uh, but after that, we would be able to, uh, at least later on in life, we kind of realized we shouldn't be like fighting amongst each other and more so be like supporting each other. Yeah, I think it takes a long time for any pair of siblings to understand that life is too short to just be fighting and bullying each other all the time. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. And, uh, and and I get it, though. It's all, like, part of the idea, right? Because, like, kids do kids. Siblings do things, you know, for whatever reason. But because uh, you had a sibling, too. Did you ever go through any of that stuff? I mean, yeah, I've got an older sibling. I mean, my sister is four years older than I. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, growing up, we definitely had our uh, our pains together. Um you know, roughhousing, making fun of each other, um, you know, and we, we definitely had some difficulties, too, because she was uh, she was a bit bossy, still is in some respects. But it, it like it even got to the point where, you know, my parents had to step in and remind her exactly, you know, who pays the mortgage for the house and who puts food on the table and just reminding my sister that, hey, she's not exactly in charge of anything when we were younger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's always that's always a fun conversation. <laughs> Mine had similar. Well, I think that's I think that's something that definitely older siblings kind of take on, and you see this a bit with Chet too. Like I'm, you know, Chet's probably what in his mid twenties in this movie, and yet for some reason is still living at home. He has a room there. 
you know, keeping an eye on Wyatt because his parents are out of town for God knows how long, which begs the question, why are you leaving two 15-year-olds unsupervised for the most part with a super advanced computer that can apparently create life? And it's, I don't know, it's just <laughs> this weird set of circumstances that cause Wyatt and Gary to be unsupervised and with too much time on their hands. Yeah, and craziness ensues, like having a missile come through your house throwing a giant party you know all that stuff it's it's literally uh it's it's a depiction of pandora's box i would say and you know chet gets his comeuppets too um he gets turned into this disgusting like slug like creature for just uh lisa is finally done with him so she just like you know makes him uh atone for all of his mistakes and apologize to wyatt I mean, not exactly the way I would have done it, turning him into a, a mutant frog turd. I don't know what that was. I mean, it was hard to tell if they he she literally turned him into a pile of poop or if she turned him into a frog. But she turned him back. Apparently, Chet's all the better for it, which, hey, if that's all it takes, I mean, to humble somebody up, I mean, let's let's make that an actual thing. <laughs> right. Where where Where's the frog turn people into frogs to humble them? That's funny. Yeah, it, 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 they did the best. I think uh, John Hughes did the best that he could for an 80s film, you know? A schlocky teenage 80s film. It's still, I mean, it's interesting to watch Chet and Lisa interact because, like, you know, Chet is eyeing her up thinking, like, ooh, I can put my moves on her. And then... <laughs> Turns out she uses her witch powers or whatever. It's like, no, I'm going to turn you into a frog, but bam. <laughs> she wasn't buying any of his nonsense. I was just amazed at Lisa's powers because she's able to conjure. She's able to change the clothing on the Gary and Wyatt are wearing, conjure fake IDs, come up with vehicles because for some reason, like they're driving Porsches and luxury cars like you as an audience even in 1985 you have to suspend uh, suspend an incredible amount of disbelief cuz about cuz her abilities don't stop there she's able to freeze uh, Wyatt's grandparents when they come over just freezes them in time and locks them in a pantry yeah her powers were really like unexplained you know at what the capacity was I mean, yeah that, that's not something that they they really talk about like I don't know. I mean, we just got off. We're just fresh off of watching Dune. So there's like this whole idea that's fresh in our mind about superhumans. And (laughs) this is just I don't know if this is like superhumanism bordering on witchcraft. Like, it's really hard to to peg which hole this falls into. Yeah, it's like she she almost becomes godlike, like almost like a genie in a way too. could like grant any wish. And to like control anything. It was it was just really uh interesting concept. Um but I don't know, poor execution maybe. I don't know if it's poor execution. I mean th- there's definitely an arc we see for Gary and Wyatt's character, but I don't know if we get one for Lisa, or at least one that's not well formed, because she's still she still owes Gary and Wyatt a great debt for being her creators. 
and at the end of the movie she shows up at their high school as what the new gymnastics teacher the new <laughs> pe teacher so like i don't like she's continuing her mission looking out over gary and wyatt or she's finding like a new generation of boys to to mold their minds but i'm just i don't know if lisa actually gets an arc or if there's anything like that's you know marxist is like yes movie well executed yeah yeah because you know actually the ending with her character i would have preferred if she was deleted because when she shows up at the end and she's like staring at those young boys and about to like quote unquote break them in for like gymnastics and stuff that just kind of i don't know it just kind of made me feel a little grossed out (laughs) Because, you know, like at the beginning of the scene, she's like grabbing these kids' butts, um, these like 15-year-olds' butts, like sexually assaulting them essentially, right? Because she's an adult and they're minors and like kissing on them. So I don't know. It was just like kind of like really kind of weirded me out. Like, does she have like a thing for teenagers? Ah, I don't know. I I didn't like the ending. I was like, no. Like I kind of, I understood where he was going for it. Like, I guess she serves as, like, the facilitator of, like, young teenage boys and, like, making them realize that women are more than just body parts. But I just don't think that's where, like, the poor execution comes in my uh, um, perception. But maybe, or maybe this film's just, like, not really subtle. And it's just meant to, like, because it's the 80s, it's supposed to beat you over the head. That could be it. Yeah, I think it's just supposed to be a fun romp with... You know, two little boys who realize that there's more to life than just chasing babes. And uh, even Lisa, you know, has this realization that like, okay, I've done all I can do for Gary and Wyatt. I'm not going to hang around here. I'm going to, you know, live a life that's my choosing. I mean, I would have liked her. I I mean, I can definitely see your point of her maybe deleting herself, but I would have liked to see her. Maybe not do something that, you know, sexualizes her once again. You know, maybe she, yeah, maybe she ventures off into the corporate world or she does something in politics or she becomes a scientist. I would have liked to have seen her pursue a different path as opposed to, well, I'll find two new boys to mold and shape into my own image. Yeah, while wearing short shorts and a skimpy crop top. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, the 80s were a hell of a time, apparently. She she got the genie, you're free moment. <laughs> yeah, not too many of those we get outside of actual genie in the bottle movies. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? Uh, I guess we haven't really talked about him too much. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. He's young. He's a young man in this. This is young Robert Downey Jr. What'd you think? It was weird seeing both young Robert Downey Jr. and young Bill Paxton in this movie. Like, we now know RDJ, Tony Stark, hero of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it's so weird to see him baby-faced. You know, this was the days before his drug problems and his jail time and his rehab. And uh, he does play a very convincing bully in this movie, I gotta say. Oh, yeah. He's a hell of an actor. Like, you, he was just a hell of an actor. You knew. Um, you just know, like, with some of these younger actors, you're like, they're going to go places. Yeah, like, you can just, he definitely had that look about him, but it was definitely, I mean, derailed a little bit. I mean, with you know, some other people just 
not being the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't think Wyatt's acting was all that good. <laughs> I mean, but, but hey, maybe that's why he, I mean, he went off into academia and, and became the the uh, the scholar he is. Maybe he's just, he realized before somebody else told him this acting thing's not going to work out for me. Yeah, absolutely. But I would say uh, Bill Paxson, um, that was kind of interesting seeing him. Uh, it was cringy because like they're going for like a military esque performance, and I was like, man, this guy's haircut is awful, and just like how he was rock, rock uh, rocking and rolling around the house. But um, it was weird. But I mean, he is well. You just knew like he was gonna be somebody, you know. Yeah, I think I wrote in my notes for Bill Paxton the flattest of flat top haircuts. Oh my god, yeah. It's like they literally just spiked his hair up and just chopped it off at the base of his head. It was crazy. You could have balanced a glass of water on his hair. Yeah, right? He was doing the Scotty Pippen throwback from the 90s. Where he just spiked up and fruit flat top, baby. Yeah, like, I didn't get Chet's deal. Like, everything about him screams, you know, hardcore military, but yet he's able to go off on hunting trips like so like i don't know like is is chet like this weird you know want to be a military operator or is he like actually in the military like i don't i don't get it did you catch any of that yeah i took it as a wannabe because um i or i don't know if like they didn't know what they were going for with him maybe like a douchebaggy brother that did like rotc or something like that um, or like an Eagle Scout, <laughs> but yeah, I, I they're they're going for that. But I felt then if that was the case, they should have just like had him home from like service, like he was home for the holidays or something, you know, and had to watch his brother, and he was just being a dick. Um, but I don't know. That's also like propagating like stereotypes that like people in the military are just crazy knuckleheads. Yeah, I feel like Chet's uh, sadistic tendency should have been picked up in whatever psych evaluations they have going on in the military. <laughs> right? Absolutely. There's just a lot of terrible people. Like you said, none of the men in this film are redeemable. Yeah, nobody really comes out smelling like roses in this movie, which, I mean, I mean, obviously nobody dies in this movie, so we didn't can't pick a red shirt. But it, like, besides the fact that there's nobody really that's redeemable in this movie it made it really hard in picking a yellow shirt either mm -hmm. i would yeah it's uh yeah it's just like a a bummer <laughs> it's like lisa yeah but it, like and she manufactures so many like heroic moments for gary and Wyatt. i think like the yellow shirt moment I selected was when Gary and Wyatt stand up to the mutant bikers. But as we talked about earlier, that's a manufactured scenario from Lisa. So if there is a hero in this movie, like as you were, I think you were about to say, Lisa is the hero here. Mm -hmm. She like, she is the only, I think redeemable person. Cause they like make her with intent. And then she flips their um, expectations of everything on its head and then teaches them a lesson on life. So, um, while being sexualized in a very highly manner. But hey, I guess that's what John Hughes was going for. Huh? I mean, he certainly made his intentions clear. 
did anything bother you like stick out for a lens flare um yeah like i'm sticking with the that's uh the portion of the film that's set at the party at wyatt's house so that second creation scene where gary and wyatt are going to help the bullies make their own woman like we said presumably to rape and and torture but they wind up creating the ultimate phallic symbol a nuclear missile that comes up right (laughs) through the floor but like but during this scene though like everything in the house goes hog wild their furniture is sucked up through the chimney books fly off the shelves and then there's some poor teenagers clothes that are blown up and then she's sucked up through the chimney and dumped into a little pond that's behind the house so yeah like that's my lens flare is you have you're forcing this teenage girl to or presumably young woman to take her clothes off just to prove a point like, Oh, stuff's going crazy in the house. (laughs) Yeah. I, I would say for me, that was very on point with like my lens flare. The idea like that they did like the whole resurrection scene again. I understood why uh, it was there, but like the carnage to the house was just weird. Um, And then also like, the bar scene was really my lens flare or actually um gary's uh accent was just really like off-putting to me like whatever he was doing like that accent portrayal of people like that just whenever he talked like that i was like i want to kill this man i want to like strangle this child (laughs) like i can't you know because that's uh abuse putting hands on a minor but i was like man this boy he needs he needs to get slapped (laughs) or something I mean, yeah, this is definitely in the still in the days where it was still okay to slap someone else's <laughs> kids. You know, you just you pinch it and you be somebody's parent for a little bit and you let them know, like, hey, you don't act like that. You pinch it. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, if your parents weren't around to hit you, someone else stepped in and they pinch it for you. <laughs> that, that is, you're not wrong. I remember those days. God, you know, and Gary's parents didn't even seem that, you know, he was living a lie. Did you actually like a quick, so like Gary got deleted from their, her dad's, his dad's like memory by Lisa. I think so, because I think that was the only way she was going to be able to get out of that argument because you know, she casually mentions, Oh yeah, your son masturbates in the bathroom. And then that was the only way she was going to be able to get out of that, that conversation. And then I, I still love it. Like, yes, it's another problematic moment. Um, but I just love the interaction between Gary's parents for the rest of the movie. Where it's like, I don't know who this Gary person you're talking about is. Who's Gary. I don't know <laughs> whose picture that is. I love those, <laughs> love those yes. scenes. Yes. And his mom the whole time. Oh, Gary. No, no, Gary, Gary. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. It reminded me of uh, like the movie Airplane with the woman on the plane that was just like freaking out. And they're like, calm down, woman. Calm down. Oh, yeah. And they that. start slapping her. I love that <laughs> moment, too. God, there's moments in this film where the 80s just shine through and you just laugh your butt off because it's like, yes. Um, did you have any, so I'm sure with this film, there had to have been toxic fandom. There has to be. You know, there actually is. Um, I, I thought, uh, the, well, we talked about it earlier, the driver's license. So, I mean, for this latest edition in this week in toxic fandom, 
The fake driver's license Lisa gives Wyatt to get into the bar would be rejected by any bar bouncer in Illinois. Besides being <laughs> cut crooked, the driver's license number doesn't match the name, sex, and birth date information shown on the license. Bouncers know that Illinois driver's license numbers can be decoded to yield that data. The number shown on the license should belong to a female born in 1951 whose last name begins with P. So we have a license plate nerd who actually paused the movie, looked up the number on the driver's license, and came up with this magical tidbit of information. (laughs) Someone actually paused it and Googled that. It's crazy, man. That's like the people that pause the films and uh, re- try to read the newspapers. I guess curiosity, you know. I mean, I'm not gonna lie; that is fun to do with newspapers because most often they're just like, you know, joke, you know, paragraphs or joke headlines or whatever. That is fun to do, but to actually pause it, you know, write down a driver's license number and then look up who that driver's license number should actually be—that's taking it to a whole other level. <laughs> they want it. They want to know whose number this is. <laughs> that's that's kind of messed up and i did not know you could do that in real life i so. didn't either i mean i that's a whole lot of privacy issues coming to that for me <laughs> me too brother so what else did you learn on force fed sci-fi this week folks <laughs> take care of your privacy oh god be yourself and yet protect your privacy yes those are the two lessons we impart <laughs> I love it. This film, uh, you did say, though, there uh, was a TV series in the 90s. Yeah, it's part of the weird legacy of this film. I mean, now we're I mean, we're close to 40 years since this movie's been out. And somehow, for some reason, like in the mid 90s, a TV show was made for that's based off the premise of this movie. The cast is replaced. Um, there's no Anthony Michael Hall. There's no Ian Mitchell Smith. No Kelly LeBrock. But it still follows the same premise. You know, they're they're socially inept high school nerds. They create Lisa, but instead of but now she's more considered like a genie, like as opposed to this you know weird this ultra um, human robot whatever she is. So she's more has like genie qualities to her i mean this ran somehow this ran for 88 episodes over the course of four years and um but but john hughes wanted nothing to do with this movie he had no involvement with the television version here um it still used the same uh oingo boingo theme song that uh that composer danny elfman had made uh for the movie and like that's it like it, it got a couple of dvd releases in the late 2000s but it's just weird to me. Like, I don't think this needed a television adaptation, you know, 10 years after the movie had came out like that. That would be very weird to me. Like, you know, like, oh, um, like, I don't know, like uh, a Ford versus Ferrari movie or television show based off of the movie comes out 10 years after the movie comes out or a Knives Out television show like that would those two ideas would just be very weird to me. No one asked for him. <laughs> no one wanted them and they still somehow got 88 episodes huh yeah it's it's insane to me that this got 88 episodes based off of this premise 
I mean, I would have hoped they would have cleared up some of the uh, problematic, you know, aspects of female depiction in this movie, or at least uh, in in the show. Um, I don't know. I have not watched a second of this of this television <laughs> show. I don't exactly plan to. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's just there in the ether. If somebody out there, you know, has a spare copy they want to send to us so we can watch it and maybe turn around our opinions on this, hey, feel free to do so. Absolutely. I uh, saw on Grand Old Wikipedia that they were going to attempt to make a sequel, like uh, or a reboot, I guess, sequel reboot with um, Channing Tatum. And they wanted it, like, you know, to be, like, R-rated, Hangover-esque. Um, but that didn't really get off the ground. And I, that is kind of interesting. If they used Channing Tatum, it would be more of like a um, – I'd imagine that it would be from, like, a female depiction. You know, or maybe LGBTQ. Who knows? I mean, yeah, it's entirely possible. I think if you were going to do that, I mean, I would make, if you're going to do two women, make them a bit older, college age, highly intelligent, but, they, but they're but they awkward and they want to go on dates. So what do they do? They take a, a G.I. Joe that looks like Channing Tatum and turn him into a real man. And yeah, like I would, I maybe watch that movie if there's a bit of an edge to it, um, but also takes away some of the, problematic aspects of sexuality and objectifying women like yeah i think there's i think there's a good remake potential for weird science definitely yeah that i think so too because that would be that could be a uh, thoughtful thing for women you know as well that you you don't need no man that <laughs> looks like that just be yourself <laughs> or like i said lgbtq that would be cool as well um, to see it from that perspective as well. So I'm down uh, if it makes a remake. I don't know if I'd watch it, but if it's more like um, centered on uh, with modern constructs and less um, sexist and uh, cringeworthy, I'd be down to uh, support that. All for the empowerment of people. All we ask is if this remake does get off the ground, Sean and I get a screenplay credit. I feel like that's. <laughs> I feel like we're owed that. <laughs> yes from bringing it up yes yes please just a, just a shout out or even talk about force-fed sci-fi in the movie hey we'd settle for a cameo put us in the movie that's right two do two douchebags on like a little quick cut on our podcast show <laughs> i love it oh well i mean for here from on here my good sir would uh i can we can delve into our rating because i don't think this like won any awards or anything um no i mean no major awards that i can see it was a a financial success i mean uh made on a budget of seven and a half million dollars it made close to 40 million so definitely a success during its time um uh critical reviews were not exactly kind to it neither have more modern reviews either but a lot of praise was heaped on Kelly LeBrock and her performance. And I mean, and I think that is something to note. Like, yes, she does look great on screen, but I think it's her acting ability is the reason to watch this movie. If you do decide to spend the money to rent it or like, Hey, I've been curious. I like John Hughes. I want to see what this movie's about. Like, yes, she is the reason to watch this hands down. I like that. And there, I think Roger Ebert called this film 
Uh, he called LeBrock wonderful. And he thought the film was uh, funnier uh, and a little deeper than the predictable story might have been. <laughs> With her in it. So, all right, Roger Ebert. Uh, Roger Ebert from Beyond the Grave gives us wonderful tidbits to share. Though I guess Siskel only gave it one and a half stars. So, there you have it. He... Yeah, he was not a big fan. I think, uh, I think what uh, I think he expected bigger things from John Hughes and uh, was was not impressed. Well, yeah, I I see like a bunch of different angry reviews. Like one, I think female wrote that it's like it <laughs> it's a dumb joke that only fourteen year old boys can love, and there are enough movie going fourteen year old boys to make a hit out of weird science, of course. But for the rest of the population, its pandering is strenuous enough to be cause for alarm. Oh, man. <laughs> wow, that, that is mean. That's all kinds of mean. Gosh, people are just... Uh, that's a, If you want a comeback or like an insult, ask a writer. Because they will just cut you to the bone, man. Yep. <laughs> Well, too easy. Let's uh, get on with our rating scale here to finish off at least this episode on the 80 schlock with our uh, fantastic rating scale of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and wouldn't or would host a viewing party. Um, I can jump on this, uh, start us off for weird science. John Hughes, weird science. What I'll give this film is a... uh, I actually would give it a wouldn't watch, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, while, like, you know, with Dune, that was more of, like, technical and story writing, and that film had potential to be something. This film, it's, like, I think just because of all the tropes, the cringeworthy moments, for me, the triggering aspects and just the overall um, concept and execution, I don't think it uh, ages well nor um, really tells that great of a story. And um, I think there are better ways to tell an empowering story, to teach kids to be themselves, and you don't have to like objectify women or focus solely on the physicality of people to find love and be loved or accepted. Um, I think there's just many better ways to do it, and I think um, this one, at least for me, misses the mark with that due to the just really off-the-wall moments and just overall no good real characters, to be honest, except Lisa. And she almost acts out of, like, meanness the whole film towards these boys. So for that, yeah, I just I cannot co-sign this film nor uh, tell people that they should watch it. So for me, that's a would-not-watch. How about you, Chris? You know, I'm going to echo everything you just said. I'm also going to call this a would not watch. And it's a it's a weird instance for me where I like the song for this movie <laughs> more than I like the actual movie and would rather watch an unproduced remake than the actual movie. Because I think there is a story here in this movie that I think in our modern times, our modern ideas of gender and beauty standards, I think there is an interesting story to tell here. Um, I don't think that this should have been made in the 80s. Um, but, I mean, I love John Hughes. This, is, unfortunately, is a rare miss for him. 
but I would be more interested to see a modern remake than watching this again. So I'm I'm calling this a, a would not watch. Rock on. All right. This is a doo-doo stew rating by uh, yours truly. <laughs> <laughs> it gets the force-fed sci-fi approved doo-doo stew stamp. <laughs> Which I guess could be a picture of uh, Chet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if, if we, if we have a listener out there that is adept at making stamps, if you, if somebody wants to make us a stamp, this is doo doo stew and it's a picture of Chet in, you know, turd frog form, please make that and send it to us so we can actually stamp the bad movies we watch. That would be amazing. That would be awesome. I would be so elated. I'm just (laughs) (laughs) awesome. So, my good sir, we do have a few more days left of this month. Would you like to review another? Yes, sir. And you've got the pick. We're continuing on with 80 Schlocky Sci-Fi Month. So, Sean, what are we watching next time? Oh, we are going to watch the classic Flash Gordon. Oh, man. You know, I <laughs> I remember the soundtrack to that movie because my dad has that soundtrack. And I just remember Queen going, Flash! So I can't wait to watch this. <laughs> I, I, I've i never seen it, but I have heard, I've seen so many references about it. I am so pumped. That's why I'm like, yes, we have to. <laughs> Looking forward to that. That's going to be a fun one to watch. Absolutely, my friend. As always, Chris, I appreciate you. It's a blast. Uh, it is a pleasure talking these movies with you, Sean. And if you all enjoyed the, the, uh, today's episode, please, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You can also now leave a five-star review on Spotify. That really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Forcefed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream your audio. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. And so for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time.